Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 304th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is the world's most famous sex therapist, a German-born Holocaust survivor who emigrated to America, pursued a career in psychosexual and relationship therapy, and then, in her 50s, became a household name thanks to her candid discussion of sex on radio and TV, in countless books, columns, lectures, and university courses, and now, at the age of 91, in a terrific documentary that debuted at Sundance in January, in theaters in May, and on Hulu in June, called Ask Dr. Ruth, the legendary Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Over the course of our conversation at the Washington Heights apartment in which Dr. Ruth has resided for 54 years, the 91-year-old and I discussed the devastating impact that the Holocaust had on her and her family, why, years later, as a single mother living in New York, she decided to pursue a career in sex therapy and ended up starting her own private practice, how, in 1980, she wound up with her own radio show, Sexually Speaking, which turned her into a sudden celebrity, and how she handled that, what she makes of the hot-button sex-related topics of today, including dating apps, porn, legalized prostitution, gender pronouns, incels, and the Me Too movement, plus much more. And so, without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Dr. Ruth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it, and I apologize. I was so excited, I spilled water all over your table already, so... I know. I wonder what that means psychologically. <laughs> By the end of the podcast, we'll I will have it to out. get it out, right? <laughs> for people who haven't yet seen this great documentary about you, I, I want to just begin like we always do on this podcast. Where were you born and raised, and what did your parents do for a living? Okay. So, first of all, I can't believe that somebody didn't see the film yet. <laughs> it's on Hulu. Please watch it. The documentary is just beautiful. Yes. So, I'm Dr. Ruth K. Westheimer. I was born in a little village near Frankfurt in Germany. The village is called Wiesenfeld. But my parents already lived in Frankfurt. And when I was one year, my mother... My father came every weekend to the farm in Wiesenfeld. And then when I was one, my mother and, and myself uh, moved to Frankfurt. And we lived with my paternal grandmother, uh, the mother of my father, in Frankfurt. And very fortunate because she had nothing else to do but take care of me. My mother helped my father in the business. And very important to tell you, mm -hmm. Scott, that when people ask, how can somebody like myself, who lost her whole family in the Holocaust, mm -hmm. they were all killed in Auschwitz, and how can somebody like myself write a book about joie de vivre, the zest yeah. for life? And I have an answer for that. I did a study of those children who were in the orphanage with me, yes. 50 of them, in Switzerland, the children's home that became an orphanage. And uh, I did a longitudinal study for my master's thesis. And very interesting. All of them made it. None became Dr. Ruth. <laughs> None had Scott Feinberg sitting in her living room. But they all made it. None of them committed suicide. Wow. None of them became clinically depressed or uh, any other serious issues. And the reason for that is 
that the early socialization, the early years of their lives, like me, were in a loving household with parents and with an organized, wonderful life. So I lived in Frankfurt. Yes. I went to an excellent Jewish school. I, I, my parents were Orthodox Jews. The school was called Samsung Raphael Hirsch. And until the age of 10. That's when you were sent with the kinder transport to Switzerland, and, and that's where the orphanage period began. And I didn't know this about you until I saw the film, just the years of not even knowing what became of your parents and all of that. And I just wonder, as someone who has really studied the mind all of, all of your adult life, even though you've managed to retain that sort of joy and upbeatness, how do you think that period changed you? Is there something that you were like before that, that you were different afterwards? An interesting question that there's no answer. Yeah. Because I can't know yeah. what I would have been. I certainly would not, if I had stayed in Frankfurt yeah. with parents uh, and a grandmother in an Orthodox Jewish household, I would not have talked about sex from morning to night. Right, right. That's for sure. You probably would have been married at a very young age, right? Not necessarily. The German Jews were not so eager to get them married early, not like some other Jewish groups. Yes. But I would have been married. I would have been heavy, short. <laughs> I'm still short, but not heavy. Not heavy. And I don't know what would have happened to me. I would have learned something because I, from childhood on, my father instilled the importance of knowledge and the importance of learning. Yes. And that comes out beautifully in the film. Absolutely. Of how important education is, because education nobody can take from you. Well, because of the of the tragic circumstances that happened after you turned 10, you, I assume, did not get to have the birds and the bees conversation that a lot of kids have with their parents or some version of that at some point. So what was your introduction to sex? How did you even learn that there was such a thing? So everybody that listens to the two of us yes. has to go and see the film. Of, of course. course. And it's very interesting because in the film, in the animation, and I have something else to tell you about animation in a moment, in the animation it shows clearly that at the age of maybe nine and a half, I climbed up on a chair, put books on the chair. I really risked my neck <laughs> to learn about sex because there was a book on the top shelf called The Ideal Marriage by Wandervelde. <laughs> I remember that. Yep. And it had illustrations of different sexual positions. Yeah. So that was really my parents hid it. But when nobody was home, I climbed up and I do remember that I looked at it and it's beautifully portrayed in the animation that I looked at it and I said, ah, that's what my parents are doing. <laughs> but I certainly would not have become a sex therapist. That was not in part of the values and part of the way of life in terms of Orthodox Jews. However, the reason that I can talk so much about orgasms and erections mm -hmm. the way I did all of these years yes. is because I'm very Jewish. In the Jewish tradition, it's clear that sex was never a sin, not like in some other religion. Mm -hmm. Sex was always an obligation of a husband with a wife. Yep. 
and not only an obligation, but also an obligation to satisfy her. I did a book called Sexuality in the Jewish Tradition. Yeah. I do believe that part of the success and part of that I can speak so uh, explicitly has to do with my being very Jewish. Yes. That there was never this overlaying of shame or sin or anything like that. Now, the Jewish religion, like I think probably most, frowns upon premarital sex, right? Absolutely. The film does address your loss of your virginity. Without spoiling uh, all the details from the film, when in your life did that happen? I won't tell you. Please go and see the film. I saw it. I saw it. Everybody should go and see the film. However, yeah. I want to say something important. When I agreed, I first didn't want to do a documentary. I agreed because I saw a movie that Rafi Marmor, the producer, did that was called No Place on Earth. And I saw that movie and it spoke to me, especially the title, because there was no place on earth for me in terms of the Nazi propaganda of killing all of the Jews, not just Jews, homosexuals, mm -hmm. gypsies, disabled people. So once when I saw that film, once I agreed, I met Ryan White, the filmmaker, once I agreed, I knew that I did have to uh, kind of reveal a few things about myself that maybe I skipped over in the autobiography <laughs> that I did. So I took a deep breath and I did uh, say, yes, I had two. Uh, I first of all had a wonderful relationship with a wonderful fellow that was my first one in a haystack. Go and see the film. Yes. <laughs> and then I did have, um, I'm showing in the film, my relationship with that first boyfriend yes. in the children's home. That was no intercourse. That was just holding hands. And, and you still remembered the kiss taste and you I said in the film? <laughs> you, you watched that I, film carefully. Twice. I still remember the taste of those kisses. Yes, yes. And, and I visit Walter every year when I, when I go to Israel. So, but then I wanted to show that you have to realize that things are not always so easy. Right. So I had two legalized love affairs. Yes. And the second love affair, I was pregnant and then I got married. And then I show in the film that I kept the child yes. and gave the father of the child the car. He got the old car and I kept the child, well, my, my Miriam. Well, the film talks about the fact that you, you were married several times and divorced before you met what seems clearly the love of your life, right? Right. Fred, what I wonder is, though, you were earlier than most a single mother, yes. a working mother. With no money, with a no dollar an hour, <laughs> at the same clothing every day. Every day. But I have a wonderful daughter. Yes. She now has two children. Yep. I have four grandchildren, and the important thing, Scott, for your listeners to hear is when I look at my grandchildren, two in Canada, two here, I can smile broadly over my whole face because Hitler is dead mm -hmm. and the Nazis are not in power, thank God. Yep. And I have the best four grandchildren that anybody in the world has. That's great. And you know what that makes me think of, just quick aside, for The Hollywood Reporter a few weeks ago. I don't know if you know 
I think you do know Rabbi Marvin Heyer, who runs the Museum of Tolerance in L.A., and he had mentioned to me that it was the 100th anniversary of what they call the Hitler letter, the first letter that where Hitler professed his hatred for the Jews. And so we decided to commemorate that in The Hollywood Reporter by gathering – we had four of the studio chiefs in, in from Hollywood come – pose with Rabbi Heyer, and then there was a survivor, Betty Cohen, 98-year-old woman, who held the letter, and we did a photo shoot and a conversation can about I it. Can I please have it? Absolutely. Like, I'll send like you, today? I'll get it to you immediately. Fine. But, but, Federal uh, Express. Yeah, absolutely. But the thing is, it's like you're saying, there's got to be some satisfaction in, in knowing that, like you say, you guys are still here. and, and At the same time, yeah. not uh, are we here, but we are productive. Right. I became Dr. Ruth. Right. The Hollywood reporter flies from Hollywood to talk to me. <laughs> Not, bad. Not bad. I did my homework on yeah, you. I, I'm I know about you. I'm honored. But what is very important is to, like I am on the board of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, yes. a living memorial to the Holocaust. Yep. That's where the Auschwitz exhibit is yes. that you have to see. I will. And very important Uh, it says, not far from here and not long ago. Yeah. Because even if it seems to you young people who listen to podcasts <laughs> that this is like a civil war a, a long time ago, it's not so long no. ago. I'm now 91 and a half, mm -hmm. and I was 10 years old when I had to leave my family. The reason that I did have to leave was that my father was already taken yes. to a labor camp. He sent a postcard saying that I have to join the group of children to Switzerland so that he can come back to Frankfurt. I had no choice. I didn't want to leave. I had 10 dolls. I had roller skates. I had a mother and a grandmother. I had a wonderful school, the Samson Raphael Hirsch School in Frankfurt. But I had no choice. When I saw that postcard, I knew that. So on a very serious note, my parents actually gave me life twice. Mm -hmm. Once when I was born mm -hmm. and once when they insisted that I have to go with that group of children. Now I have to tell you something Please. else. Yeah. There were 10,000 children at the same time being accepted to England despite the fact that there were dark clouds on the horizon just before the war. The war was in September of 39. This was in January of 39. I went to Switzerland on January 5th, 1939, like the last moment possible. Yeah. Holland, Belgium, and France took 300 children each. Holland, Belgium, France, and Switzerland. If I had been in the group of Holland, Belgium, and France, I wouldn't be alive. Right. All of these children did not make it. They were all killed by the Nazis. The Switzerland, that's the only reason that I'm alive. Why did your father, he specifically suggested Switzerland? He, he suggested Switzerland because that was the group for Orthodox Jewish okay. children. I guess that he must have heard that these are Orthodox Jewish children going to an Orthodox Jewish children's home. Yes. It wasn't an orphanage yet. Yeah. It was a children's home for Swiss and German-speaking children, maybe parents who were divorced, maybe parents who were traveling, whatever, in, in a village uh, not far from St. Gallen, not far from Zurich. 
And it's interesting, when I look out here my window yes. and I see the Hudson, yeah. I can remember that I could see the Lake of Constance from that village in Haydn, where the orphanage was. And on the other side of the lake was Germany and Austria, and I knew there was no place for me to go there. Right, but it was that close. So it was very close, and I saw at the end of the war how Friedrichshafen on the German side was being bombarded by the Allies. So was it in a way a tribute to your parents, maybe even specifically your father, that even once you had children, even when you were a single mother with very little money, that you still, I think you actually were now married to Fred when at 42 you went to go pursue your doctorate. But the idea of continuing to be educated even at that point in life and then going to Cornell and studying with Dr. Uh, Helen Singer Kaplan, who you talk about in the film, who was, it seems like, one of the earliest sex experts. She was a brilliant psychiatrist yeah. and psychologist, and she was a sex educator, and she wrote a book, The New Sex Therapy. And I was very, very fortunate, and I say that in the film, mm -hmm. I was very fortunate that I got into that program she really didn't want people like me. She wanted only MDs, only f doctors. And I didn't have a doctorate yet. However, I talked myself into the program. <laughs> and you were there for seven years. Seven, yes. But is that, I guess what I'm asking is, do you think a part of you was so interested in continuing to pursue education of some kind as almost a tribute to your parents? No question. Yeah. Then I want to tell you something else. Yeah. When they did the animation in the film, yeah. tell everybody on the podcast they have to go and see the film. You've just done that, yes. Okay. <laughs> when they did the animation, I was very worried. I thought, oh my gosh, animation, they're going to make me look like Pinocchio <laughs> or like Mickey Mouse. I love the animation mm -hmm. because what they did, the two people who did the animation, what they did was brilliant because they showed, for example... They showed my mother and grandmother at the Frankfurt Railroad Station waving goodbye like I waved goodbye to my father when the Nazis exactly, picked him yeah. up and he turned around. He must have been horrified, but he turned around and smiled and waved. I did the same, being on the train to Switzerland, seeing my mother and grandmother who came to the station, and I was not a happy person, but I smiled and waved so that they should be less sad. But more important, the animators brilliantly made the animation as if my mother and grandmother were the only ones at that railroad station. Not so. All of the other mothers and grandmothers were there to say goodbye to their children. Uh, that permits me today to talk what I talk a lot about as an yeah. educator yeah. and as a sex therapist about loneliness. And here is to plug a book, yes. Sex for Dummies, yes. fourth edition. Uh, it looks and great. if you do a good interview, you might get it as a gift. I, <laughs> you might. I am honored to be a dummy for, uh, for I, those purposes. So the yeah. fourth edition just came out last week. Okay. And I talk about loneliness. Yeah. And I talk about loneliness of all ages, but also loneliness of young people. Yeah. And I talk to the millennials yeah. about the importance of relationships and the importance of 
the art of conversation is getting lost because all of these young people constantly have their phone and I need them to keep the phone. I'm not taking it away, yeah. but make sure that you cultivate the art of uh, conversation. Well, your children say in the documentary that that was the thing, that you never wanted to be alone, even just uh, you you would have parties when you had no money. You That's would, <laughs> uh, you know, always have a plan so that people were doing things together. I, you think it was a reaction to the fact that for all those years, in a way, even though you were surrounded by other children in the orphanage, you there was that loneliness. loneliness absolutely. Yeah. So you could be, if you are not a reporter for the Hollywood Reporter anymore, you might become a psychologist. <laughs> well, it's, uh, it's an that's a great compliment. In order to be an effective sex therapist, does one need to have had a particularly active and colorful and memorable sex life? And had you when you became a sex therapist? First of all, I don't answer any of those private questions. Okay. However, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't think so. It's a good question. I don't think so, but I think you have to have an open mind and you have to know how to protect your privacy. I'm not for the sensitivity training of <laughs> sitting down and telling everything about your life. I'm for telling everything when you have a relationship. Yes. That's a very different story. Yes. But I do think that what you do have to have is believe in life and believe in the importance of being in a relationship. So prior to 1981, when you became famous for the first time on a large scale, how would you describe the kind of dialogue that was out there as far as sex-related subjects? Mm -hmm. It was clearly like in Great Britain, when the mother told her daughter at the night of the wedding, uh, lie back and think of England. There's nothing in it for you. <laughs> so people did not talk about the importance of sexual satisfaction. They didn't talk about orgasm. They didn't talk about erection. They didn't talk about what to do when there is a problem. And I certainly was instrumental, but not the only one, but instrumental in being a good educator. Even so, I've had uh, hundreds of couples and individuals in my private practice, which I don't do anymore. I let younger people do that. <laughs> but uh, I see myself primarily as an educator. And uh, there's no question that at the time when AIDS came on the, on the, uh, in the picture, I was instrumental yes. in being able to say how careful you have to be and how important it is to have that open mind in terms of uh, sexuality. I also think I was instrumental in saying, we do not know the etiology. That means the reason for homosexuality. What I said, even in those years already, respect is not debatable. Right. Every single person has to be respected. Right. And then when AIDS came, I did certainly talk from morning till night about how careful you have to Absolutely. be. Absolutely. And you had the platform to reach a lot of people by that point because of this show, Sexually Speaking, which went on in 81. And the film does a great job of showing how this sort of organically happened. You just went on as a guest at one point and developed a following. And became number one on that radio station. Yeah, it's amazing. He talks about that, the producer. Yes. 
And I did it 10 years every Sunday night. And I went down to Rockefeller Center. 30 on, Rock, yeah. Yeah, 30 Rock on the eighth floor. Yep. And then came home. And two years in a row, I did another broadcast from one to two at home, right here to KFI in Los Angeles. So I certainly had a good run. Yes. And then came television. And, and books and columns and... Uh, and about 40 books. Lectures. Right. <laughs> every... And lectures. Yes. And every lecture, people can ask me questions. Yes. Sometimes I ask that they put it in writing yeah. so that the question can be read to me. Yes. And I have to say, looking at you, Scott, yeah. and the Hollywood Reporter, I would not have dreamt that this little radio program would have gone now ab across the world. Now, I have to tell you, yesterday, yeah. I just heard yesterday, the film was shown in Zurich, yes. in a movie house near the opera, right in the middle of the city. I did a little tape saying, I'm sorry, I can't be yeah. there. That's because of you. <laughs> because of you. Well, I, I'm sorry to have kept yeah. you from, but... Uh, I, I go wanna, again. <laughs> I, well, so the, the question, though, that this, I think... I don't know if you've ever had enough time to stop even and think about this since 1981, but you know, a lot of people become, if they become celebrities, they become celebrities in their 20s or 30s, movie stars, whatever. You were already in your 40s, 50s when you became a very a famous person. Household word. Household word, <laughs> yeah. yeah. How did you handle that? I mean, on a personal level. Mm -hmm. Okay, first of all, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said what happened to her could only happen in America. Yeah. I say... What happened to me in terms of that radio and then television yeah. could only have happened in the beginning in New York because New Yorkers are very generous with people with accents. <laughs> and uh, the, it, my program yeah. on WYNY radio could not have happened in another city in such a way like it did in New York. That's really and yeah. I, I kind of smiled at that, and I said, look at the city of New York. Who, I love the city. Yeah. How they accept immigrants, how they accept foreigners with accents. Yep. And my accent has been the same, like I'm talking to you right now. <laughs> I never took speech lessons because I never had the money for speech yeah, lessons. Yeah. I, I'm glad I didn't. No, it's defining. Because when I talk to you on your podcast... Yes. You know that it's me. Absolutely. <laughs> well, another question that I had is that, you know, once you became very famous and stopped having your private practice, how did you keep in touch with current problems and slang and terms? I mean, obviously you were dealing with people on the radio and TV, but even to this day, people seem to be able to talk to you about anything. What's the trick to knowing, it's keeping your pulse? Trick. Yeah. It's not a trick, yeah, Scott. Yeah. It's being a good educator. Yeah. And I have been always interested in what happens to people. Even so, only lately that I stopped uh, doing private practice. Okay. But I'm learning. In the Talmud, it says you learn from your students. Every lecture that I give, the other day I lectured in Connecticut to 600 people that wow. did a fundraiser. Wow. And Every lecture that I do, I learn something new from the questions. Mm -hmm. So I, I will not stop that as long as I can do it. Right. And it's very important that I can use humor yes. uh, so that you will remember what I talked about, but also important 
that I do remember that the questions that people ask today yeah. are not so different from the questions that they asked some years ago. On the other hand, I have tremendous material by saying less questions about women not having orgasms, mm -hmm. less questions about men being premature ejaculators. Mm -hmm. So we have all of us, all sex educators, not just me, have done a very good job in promoting sexual health, to be careful, talking about sexually transmitted diseases, talking about issues of AIDS, even today. And in my way of thinking, since I'm old fashioned and a square, <laughs> even so I talk about orgasms yeah, all day long, yeah. to make sure that there is a relationship. Well, I'm not talking necessarily marriage, but that there is a relationship in order to have the best sex possible. Well, I wonder, was in the time since you worked with Helen Singer Kaplan, what have been the biggest changes in terms of attitudes about sex? So you're talking about sex before marriage. That used to be frowned upon. Today, it seems almost commonplace. You talk about gay relationships. All of these things are now quite different, right? It's different. However, you still have to give respect, Scott, that in some religion, premarital sex is not accepted. Mm -hmm. And I say, I respect that, but let me teach you, once you can have sex, what you should do right. for both of you to be uh, satisfied. In terms of the gay community, from the beginning, I have said that we do not know the etiology the etiology means the reason for yes. homosexuality. We do not know why some men are, are attracted to men, some women attracted to women. From the beginning, I said, respect is not debatable. Mm -hmm. Every person has to be able to get respect, yep. whatever their sexual orientation. And even today, we don't know. But there is no question that gays today have an easier time. Gays can be married. Gays have an easier time in terms of accepting who they are. And I'm welcoming that. Yeah. I still say in some segments of society it's not acceptable. So these people have to find a way to move on. For example, there is a young man who called me many years ago and said he was in high school. Last year, he said he feels attracted to men. He said if he tells his parents, they will kick him out of the house. And I said, keep your mouth shut. I said, do not talk to anybody. Finish high school. Go to a college, a large college where there are groups like you. And then go to a large city. Guess what? Some years later, I'm in a restaurant. And he says, this same guy. Dr. Ruth, I have to talk to you before you leave. I go to a corner. I do that a lot. Yeah. And he said, you saved my life. Wow. I would have told my parents. They would have kicked me out of the house. Who knows what I would have done to myself. That makes me very happy. I was going to ask, how do you? because that's not an infrequent thing that you hear. How I, does that make you feel? Wonderful. Yeah. The other thing that makes me feel good, yeah. when I started the radio, because of my accent, Right. I put some money into a beggar's cup at Rockefeller Center. Some coins, you know, it was begging. 
<laughs> and he said, thank you, Dr. Ruth. <laughs> so I knew <laughs> something is happening. Well, I knew something <laughs> is happening to my life. <laughs> How has, I know you, you were saying earlier that you were joking that you're computer illiterate, but you do know that the internet and pornography have just, everyone now uh, of a, certainly young people use it. How do you think that has impacted things? One thing that I hear is that, you know, young people Kids today have seen more nudity before puberty and sex before puberty than their parents ever did even after it. And and they see sexual acts that are treated as commonplace in a way that they're not necessarily in the real world. And so I've actually heard stories about kids who, who totally grew up with the Internet where they are unable to be aroused by normal sexual interactions because what they've seen is so you know, graphic, different than what's so actually attainable. Uh, so I don't know. We don't have enough scientifically validated data. However, I would like to suggest something to yeah. you. Hollywood reporter yes, Scott. Yes, I would like to suggest, first of all, pornography is not for children. If adults watch pornography, I tell them a warning. Nobody has penises like it's shown <laughs> in pornographic movies. Right. No woman has this type of uh, orgasmic response like it's shown. But put, put that aside for a moment. I would like, not for children, I don't mind if adults see sexually explicit movies. If they're intelligent and know, that's in the movies. That's not reality. Nobody has the size of a penis. <laughs> Nobody can have an ejaculation one after the other. However, here is what I would like to suggest to you, okay. Scott, <laughs> Hollywood reporter. Yes. I would like to suggest that we are getting rid of the word pornography. Mm -hmm. Like we did get rid of the word prostitute. Mm -hmm. We now say sex workers. I would like to suggest to the Hollywood reporter that we are going to say sexually explicit material, semicolon, not for children. Okay. I don't mind if adults watch it in order not to worry about the next day's uh, rent yeah. that is due, uh, if they need about a mother-in-law, all of the other problems <laughs> of everybody, right. uh, everybody has. So if we could bury the word pornography and say sexually explicit material, not for children. That would make you happy. All right. That would make me be smiling that I have contributed even at the age of 91 yes, and a half. Another new, another innovation. Well, yeah. uh, how about another thing that this, this actually seems to be a m more recent thing in terms of becoming widely the case, but people now talk about, you know, literally you might get an email from somebody or a, a, where it says signed Scott Feinberg, the Hollywood reporter, preferred pronouns, he, him, or they, them. What do you make of that? I tell you what I make of that. We do not know. Yeah. Loud and clear. All of these issues. There were always some children who thought they are in the body of the other sex. That always existed. What's happening right now, we just don't know. We don't know, and we have to be careful, Scott, especially people like you with The Hollywood Reporter, not to get on bandwagons. Mm -hmm. Every person, like what I said with homosexuals, every person in this world has 
has the right to respect, but not to get on bandwagons of saying so many percentage are now uh, in the body of the of the wrong sex, and so many want to be called this, and so many want to be called that. It took me a while to be able to say to two gays, how is your husband? Mm-hmm. It took me a while for two women when she said, that's my wife. I, I, I had to kind of whoop, t- take a little bit of a pause. But now I got used to it. And like I said from the very beginning, that respect is not debatable. You think I don't want people to get on that bandwagon of saying that everybody uh, is homosexual or that everybody is, uh, is whatever. What about the, you know, there, there are some irreversible things that, that can happen now that it's being kind of hotly debated. All right, so if your young child comes to you and says at the age of five, let's say, uh, and it's a, it's a person born, born as a boy, and they say, I feel like a girl and I want to start dressing like a girl and I want to be called a female name and all of that. Now the, the, now that there's fairly easy correct or you know surgery to, to address these things, some parents are indulging those you know the children at a very young age. What, what sh- how do you feel about that just because that's another thing that people are really debating at the moment? Scott? Yeah. Let them debate yeah. and let me say loud and clear. Yeah. I have no answer. Yeah. If that happens, we have to find some people who are qualified in that area and we have to be very careful because if it's just a question of a fashion if it's just a question of uh, everybody else is doing it or my best friend is doing it or best uh, girlfriend we have to be very careful if a question like this would come to me i would try to find a psychiatrist Mm -hmm. or a social worker or anybody psychologist who has expertise in general, we don't have enough knowledge about that. Very careful in your area of being a reporter and a good reporter. Thank I did you. my research <laughs> on you um, to be very careful not to get on bandwagons. Right. Because what if you do that operation with hormones? And what if afterwards they want to be reversed? I would worry very much. I'm not saying people shouldn't get respect. For whatever they are, we do not have enough scientifically validated data about these issues. So when I'm being asked about that, I say I'm never embarrassed to say I don't know. Yes. yes. So the last time I gave a lecture to students on Sex for Dummies, the the, the book, and I got one of those questions from a guy. I took the book that I had in my hand and I said, I do not know. Here is the book. See, maybe there's something in it for you. Yes, yes. And then let me know. And he called me and he said, thank you. That's great. (laughs) You were talking about loneliness earlier and just, you know, the sense of feeling alone. And there's actually a movie opening today called Joker. I don't know if you've read about this yet, but it's sort of a it's taking the the Batman comic book character, the Joker, and treating it very seriously and saying this is a person who is sort of like what. Uh, a lot of people today, I, I, I apparently identify as it's called. They're called incels, involuntarily celibate people, people that are sort of angry because men who young men who are angry because they are not 
they don't feel that they're as sexually embraced by women as they deserve to be. And this has been something that a number of the of the mass shooters have self-identified as, and now there's sort of almost like a, a hero character for them in this movie Joker, which is going to make a lot of money this weekend. And I just wonder if you've had any opportunity to think about this this phenomenon, this weird where they're calling themselves incels and they almost take pride in that this is this is who we are and, and we feel oppressed in a way because people don't see how we're, 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 they should be sexually appreciating us more, women. No comment. No comment. No comment because I haven't seen the movie. Yeah. I'm not, I haven't read about it. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear about what you're saying. Mm -hmm. I probably will have to see it. Yeah. Even if I don't like it. Yeah. But no comment. Me too. This has been a... This has been a, a sea change in the in the world in since 2017, starting with Harvey Weinstein, who was on this podcast before we knew a lot about him on that side of his life. I guess I just am curious: Are you surprised that it took so long for all of these stories to come flooding out? I'm very worried about it. Yeah, and as you know, I'm old-fashioned and a square. I don't talk about people who rape. Anybody who has been raped has to go to the police and to a social worker. And then to work on that, to put it aside, it's a terrible thing. They will never forget it, but they have to talk to an expert. I'm not an expert. The issue of me too is a big problem for me because in the Jewish tradition it says when that part of the male anatomy is aroused, the brain flies out of the head. In America, there is a way of saying, God didn't give you men enough blood for two heads. <laughs> so I'm saying something that is not popular, but I have to stick to what I believe. That's what I'm known for. Mm -hmm. That's how I'm Dr. Ruth yes. K. Westheimer. Yes, yes. And standing up at the age of 91 and a half. Amazing. In my way of thinking, two people, a man and a woman, two men or two women, have no business in bed naked if they didn't decide to have sex. Mm -hmm. This idea that you can say, now you can touch my left breast or my right breast, or I changed my mind, is not going to work. There will be a lot of big, big problems. I'm not talking about rape. Yeah. I'm not talking about anybody who has been forced. Right. I'm talking also about issues of that you know, you know that not to go to a hotel room, even though you might want that job. And that holds true for men and women. So this is not just women who go to hotel rooms. Right. You know, I tell people I want them to date because I don't want them to be lonely. Yeah. Never to date in a secluded place. Right. Go to a hotel lobby. Go to a movie. Right. Do something together, but don't put yourself ever into a situation that you don't have control, especially with alcohol. If you are drunk, you have no business to be in a sexual relationship with somebody that you don't really know. I don't mind if some people you know well 
and you have a relationship already, and then you drink a little bit, and then you get giddy, and, and fun might be wonderful for sex. Not with somebody that you don't know. The other thing I want to tell you, they used to think that women don't get aroused by sexually explicit material. Mm -hmm. Not true. Mm -hmm. Lady Chatelle is lover, Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. <laughs> There are many issues like that. Right. And I have always said that women do get aroused by erotic literature and by erotic movies. Use it to put your worries about everyday life aside when you are with a person that you want to be with. Now, I sound like an old, old moralist, <laughs> and that's okay. Yeah. In that respect, I'm not a moralist in terms of saying you have to be married to have good sex. I'm saying please have a relationship. The sex is probably can be fantastic with a, with a stranger. In my way of thinking, use that stranger in your fantasies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't use in your fantasy a next-door neighbor <laughs> because that's too near <laughs> to reality. <laughs> However, be careful. And I'm very worried about that issue that you, you, Scott, can't tell a woman in your office that's a nice dress you're wearing. And right now there is such tension and there are such problems that we do not talk enough about. Well, I read another interview of yours that was quite recent where somebody was asking you about just the post-Me Too tensions in society. And I thought it was interesting that it, it, my sense was that you feel, and, and I, I don't disagree, that in a, in a way it can infantilize women to act as if, you know, certain types of interactions are just as comparable as the most severe ones. Like there were a few sort of situations where both genders seemed to agree. I don't know if you had read about this guy, this actor, Aziz Ansari, was one of them, a comedian, where it was basically a date gone wrong, but he was publicly written about. And so because we're all in a, uh, understandably in a frenzy about what do we do in this moment, anyone who's accused no matter the magnitude of the crime, seems to be lumped together. And I'm wondering, you know, the big challenge, I guess, is going to be it can't be that everyone who has ever done anything of some degree bad is equally written off, right? Because the people who have done terrible stuff like Harvey Weinstein, I think everyone agrees, you know, goodbye. I yeah, I never, ever yeah. talk about specific, specific right? Never. Sure. I can only say... People in today's world, it's good that we have a podcast like yours. Yeah. Let's talk about it. And I'm saying, please be careful. Yes. Period. You say in the documentary, and I, I found it interesting, that you do not discuss politics. Right. And Except? Yes. Aha. Uh -huh. Yeah. I knew you would come to that. <laughs> I know you already, Scott. <laughs> so, Scott Feinberg, yes. let me tell you. Please. For all these years, I stayed away from politics. Yes. Somebody who talks about orgasms and erections and <laughs> lubrication from morning till night should stay away from politics. Yes. However, yes. these days, yes. I've changed my mind. Okay. At the age of 91 and a half, yes. I say how upset I am when I, I vote. Yes. Since I'm an American citizen, yep. I have always voted. Yep. But I don't participate in any political rally or 
discussion. What is the reason for that? Because somebody who talks about sex so much has to stay away from politics. However, I changed my mind lately. Okay. I'm there are three things. Yes. I'm very upset when I see children being separated from parents. Mm -hmm. That's my story. Yes. Very upset about that. I'm very sad when, if abortion is again becoming illegal because, Scott, then only women with money will be able to get an abortion. The others, because there are always going to be contraceptive failures, mm -hmm. even for people who use contraception. Mm -hmm. The ones, who don't, the ones who have money can go to Europe. The ones who don't have money are going to abortionists and to coat hangers. Mm -hmm. It is going to be a terrible state of affair. Number three, in a country like this, where so much money is available, such a rich country, not to have enough money for Planned Parenthood is a catastrophe. Mm -hmm. Because family planning, the pill, Condoms, whatever it is, has to be available. Yeah. So there are three things. Those are the carve-outs, the exceptions. Uh, no question. But I, I want to, I have to follow up because I think from from watching the documentary and studying as much as I can about you that you cannot feel good about the fact that there is someone, forget about political party or whatever, that there is someone in the White House who says. Bragging on tape, I grab women by the pussy. Or, Go number two, <laughs> that there are two out of nine people on the U.S. Supreme Court who have been quite credibly accused of sexual okay, assault. Scott, yeah. that is your business. Yeah. And it's your obligation yeah. to talk about it. Yeah. Not me. Okay. No, I'm not pressuring. But I just say. I know, but, but yeah. this, this is something that somebody like you. Yeah. I did my research on you, too. <laughs> and... Uh, you are very smart, and you're doing a good job. You have to talk about these things, no question, not me. Okay, fair I'm enough. I'm an educator, and I know my limitations. And this is something you should talk fair about. Fair enough, fair enough. I wonder if we can close with what we call a, a rapid-fire round, just the first thing that comes to your mind. One-sentence answers, if that's all right. If you, if you want to do more, you can do more. But what is the sex-related question or concern that you have been asked about the most? I think that women who couldn't have an orgasm mm -hmm. and men who were premature ejaculators. What is the hardest question that anyone has asked you regarding sex? that they don't feel like having sex at all. And then I sent them to a psychiatrist. Does any sex-related topic offend you or make you blush? If somebody were to ask you or bring up a subject, is there anything that you would not want to discuss? I like to blush. Yeah. It's funny. <laughs> it's a very good feeling. Next. Should <laughs> prostitution, or as you've said, you prefer it be called sex, sex work, should that be legalized? Would that be Absolutely. better? Absolutely. How come? It should be legalized like in Nevada. I went to visit that farm. Mm -hmm. They get medical attention. Prostitution will always exist. I like it to be called sex workers. Mm -hmm. They get medical care and they have people watching over them. And it should be legalized because it will always exist for all times. You have said that sex should continue all your life. If you were walking down the street today and saw somebody you found attractive and it was mutual and whatever, are you open to to having a, a romantic relationship at 91? Next question. Next question. However, yes. these days, 
Scott. Yes. I take a young, good-looking guy. Yes. You might apply. <laughs> I hold his hand instead of a cane. <laughs> um, if you could snap your fingers and be young again today instead of when you were, would you? No. I like very much the way I am right now. And I like that you are sitting here, and I want everybody to watch the movie. Absolutely. And last, last one. Why do you keep at it? You're teaching still at... I think multiple university yes. courses. You're writing still columns and books. I'm looking at a few of them right now. Right here. You're giving lectures. You're making media appearances. We're talking here. You could be doing what many people your age do, which is, you know, relax and play canasta and mahjong or whatever. You choose instead to keep at it 100 <laughs> miles per hour. What? What's the se- Why is that? Scott, God forbid. <laughs> I don't know how to play canasta. However... <laughs> I want other people to play it. Yes. Because I don't want them to sit home lonely. Right. So I want them to do all of those things. Right. It's not for me. Right. For me, I get pleasure to see a Scott Feinberg sitting here, <laughs> but only if he promises me yes. that there's a chance of you know what is on my mind, but I'm not permitted to talk about it. No, say it. For say that it. film. I just want... Ah, the big O. The big O. I mean, hey, well, can you... So, I guess that's where we can close, though, on this topic. This film, Ask Dr. Ruth, is now on Hulu. It's introducing you to people who were not even alive when you were on the radio, as well as people reintroducing you to people who knew of you but didn't know your whole story. The film has been so well-received. I think I'm looking here at a... Uh, statuette from the Rotten Tomatoes people. This is a certified fresh Rotten Tomatoes statue. I know that your film is on the Doc NYC shortlist of the best documentaries of the year. We're getting into the award season of the year. How do you feel to have this film out there and be at the center of the conversation again, as always, I guess? I love it. Yeah. And you are very smart because you don't give me the answer to my question. <laughs> You're very smart. It's okay. Yeah. I won't ask again. Yeah. I love what's happening because I do love the film because the film gives me the opportunity to talk about all of those things that you and I just talked about in terms of abortion, in terms of the actress in the film who used contraceptive, but there was a contraceptive failure. Mm -hmm. She had an abortion and she's upset and I helped her. Mm -hmm. In terms of the importance of sex education, the importance of respect for people who are different from you and me. Yes. It's a terrific film. I recommend everyone check it out and buy Sex for Dummies and wh- what are the latest? Here's okay, the latest. And the doctor is in, Dr. Ruth on Love, Life and Joie de Vivre. And, for uh, children, Roller Coaster Grandma. Roller Coaster Grandma. And the which, latest book, this is a book about turtles. Leopold? Leopold. Is he a sexually active turtle? No, he is a turtle who has to learn yes. to stick its neck out and to take a risk. Okay. Otherwise he doesn't move. And Otherwise it stays in one place. The latest, Crocodile, You Are Beautiful. Yes. About diversity. Embracing our strengths and, and ourselves, yes. Little ants should be happy to be an aunt if they cooperate. Yes. They can build bridges. You are amazing. I thank you so much for doing this. It's an honor. Thank we- you. <laughs> Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast 
for free on iTunes or your podcast app, and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Finally, be sure to check out the other podcasts that are part of the Hollywood Reporters Podcast Network, all of which are excellent. Leslie Goldberg and Daniel Feinberg's TV's Top 5, Seth Abramovich and Chip Pope's It Happened in Hollywood, Carolyn Giardina's Behind the Screen, and Josh Wiggler's Series Regular. On behalf of all of us at The Hollywood Reporter, thanks for tuning in. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.